You know, listening to podcasts is awfully like drinking a pint. Having one is fine, but it's more fun to have a second. Hi, this is Andrew from the podcast Pop Culture Brews, and you are listening to Homebrewing DIY. After this episode, why don't you come and join me and my co-host Tyler as we do deep dives on pieces of pop culture we absolutely love, and then at the end of our episodes, we reveal to you the beer we were inspired to brew by it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere really where you get your podcasts. So why don't you come and join us and have a pint? Beer is a very old beverage. It's been consumed throughout the ages, and like all historical subjects, it helps us to better understand human history. So today, we're talking to Rob DeSalle, curator of the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, and he is the co-author of a great book called A Natural History of Beer. And we're going to talk to him about his book and the history of beer today on Homebrewing DIY. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the cruising ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast. And that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean cruisin. They are no match for scrubber duckies. And you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Building recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software, and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes, as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on this show, like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. 
Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this podcast covers it all. Today, we're talking to Rob DeSalle, curator of the American Museum of Natural History, about his book, A Natural History of Beer. We discuss beer history and how that history affects current brewing trends. But first, I want to thank all of our patrons. It's because of you that we can keep this show coming to you week after week. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewingdiy and give it any amount. Your monthly support keeps this show on the air. I want to thank our newest patron, Ian Herbert. He gave it the supporter level and he's going to get a really nice brewing gift from our sponsor, Scrubber Duckies. If you want to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewingdiy today. Another way to support the podcast is to go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash homebrewing DIY and write us a review. It helps others find the show. Speaking of reviews, we got a three-star review last week because of the audio quality of our interview with Olivia. And I totally agree. The quality was really poor. I actually did the whole interview with my mic pointing the wrong direction. I've since fixed the issue, but, uh, I'm also working on audio issues altogether, so hopefully we don't run into anything like that anymore. Speaking of feedback, I also got some feedback from Ed in response to his feedback from a few weeks ago. And Ed wrote, Coulter, I was surprised and a bit embarrassed to hear you read my email on the show. Well, here we are reading it again. You asked for info on the mill. Well, the big roller is hand-cranked. The thing that weighs about... 30 pounds and has a lot of inertia when it gets going. The smaller roller is two and one fourth inches exhausted pipe with the ends cut from a 14 gallon steel with 14 gallon steel welded in. Most of the rest is salvage stuff, a pulley from an old washer, a hand crank from a food grinder, lumber from a TV stand, miscellaneous hardware from my drunk drawer. You kind of get the idea. The rollers used my non-patent penting variable roller spacing technology, i.e. I can get it from I can't get it exactly parallel and to pull the grain through. It works pretty well considering and the mill it mills 10 to 12 pounds of grain in about five to seven minutes or so. So keep up the great work and cheers, Ed. Well, I want to thank Ed for the feedback. He sent me actual photos of this grain mill, and it's pretty cool. So if any of you want to check it out, head over to homebrewingdiy.beer and it's in the show notes of this actual episode. I'll actually post the images that Ed sent me. So Ed, once again, 
Thanks for the feedback. I truly enjoy reading it and hearing from you about your cool projects. And did you know that you can find the show on social media? We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Look for the handle at homebrewingdiy, all one word. The last way you can support the show is by supporting our sponsors from our website. Head over to homebrewingdiy.beer and click on our sponsor links. It lets them know that we sent you and then they support us. All right, let's jump into our show for this week as we talk to Rob DeSall about the natural history of beer. I'd like to welcome Rob DeSalle to Homebrewing DIY. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. Really, hey, really I, glad to be here. Yeah, great. I, I'm really glad to have you on the show. And, and a cool thing about Rob is uh, he and uh, his partner, Ian, uh, they wrote this really amazing book called The Natural History of Beer. Um, that came out about uh, a year ago, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it was a project that Ian and I undertook to kind of uh, look at natural history through the lens of beer, um, basically because we like to drink beer and we're both uh, curators at a natural history museum. And so we felt it'd be a lot of fun to drink beer and try to teach people about natural history. Yeah, and 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 it's a, it's a really great read. For anyone listening to the show, I'll, I'll definitely put a link to uh, the book in, in the show notes. But uh, this is a really fascinating take on on the history of beer because the idea is that uh, the book kind of starts at the beginning of time and brewing in general all the way back to the animal kingdom, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, a lot of animals, uh, uh, primates and even, even small mammals uh, uh, imbibe in drinking alcohol. Uh, our closest primate relatives are, are pretty good. Chimpanzees are pretty good drinkers. They, they like to imbibe in alcohol every once in a while. And, um, you know, our smaller mammal, uh, relatives like tree shrews and, and, um, um, other small mammals happen upon, uh, fermenting fruit. And so they'll eat the, eat and drink the fermenting fruit and, uh, they'll get a little bit of a buzz from, from that. Um, there's a hypothesis about how humans actually evolved called the drunken monkey hypothesis, which, uh, suggests that uh, we develop kind of our our uh, as our human lineage kind of evolved as a as a result of uh, our ancestors focusing on on uh, uh, plants and fruits that could ferment and and this kind of uh, drove a bit of our evolution. So uh, yeah, you can take this idea of drinking and imbibing in our in our lineage pretty far back. Um, and, and more than likely, our 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 uh, human ancestors uh, say say uh, our ancestors with Neanderthals and our ancestors with uh, Homo erectus were more than likely finding um, alcoholic things to drink. So uh, it goes back pretty far. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, that I I was was kind of cool for me in the book was the fact that there are a lot of species out there that can actually even process alcohol. And actually, our primates and, and humans are actually unique in that we've adapted the ability to do so, right? Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, what happened uh, in, in the common ancestor of, of chimpanzees and humans 
is there was a mutation in one of our genes called an alcohol dehydrogenase gene. It's a very important gene if you like drinking beer and wine and, and spirits uh, because it helps to detoxify the alcohol um, in, in, the, in the body. And this mutation allowed us to be, allowed our lineage and the chimpanzee lineage to be much more uh, efficient at processing alcohol. And so we were a bit pre-adapted to um, our predilection for, for drinking alcohol and alcoholic beverages. But other primates, as you pointed out, don't have this change. And so they're much more susceptible to, to alcohol. In fact, um, some researchers in, in South America have observed howler monkeys uh, uh, drinking fermenting fruit and, and actually getting very, very drunk and, and falling asleep. So um, our lineage, again, is, is special uh, as a result of this mutation in the alcohol de dehydrogenase. It probably occurred about 10 million years ago, again, in the common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans. Wow, that's a, that's a really long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, and, and really, one of the uh, other parts is that, uh, you know, you guys then jump into talking about really um, ancient beers. And uh, specifically, you talk about like uh, the, the Sumerians and Babylonians and how they made alcoholic beverages. And, you know, yes, they call it beer, but it's not really beer we would call today, right? No, it's, it, it's very different from the beer um, that, that um, uh, we drink nowadays. It's even very different from the beer that was drunk during the Renaissance and the beer that was drunk um, by uh, Europeans in, in, uh, pr prior to the Renaissance till about 1000 uh, AD. Um, and that's when hops started to be used. So the beer that, that the Sumerians were drinking and the Egyptians were drinking, uh, very different because it, it just didn't use hops. And it, it played around more with um, spices and, and herbs and things like that as, as additives to the beer. Um, but it, it would have been a very different tasting thing. Um, we know that, that uh, the, the um, age of, uh, or we know that brewing beer goes back pretty, pretty far from finding um, uh, pottery and shards of, of vessels that would uh, carry beer and wine and things like that. And uh, we have a pretty good idea from archaeological sites where, where uh, um, you know, at what point in time humans were developing a beer. It kind of was more than likely developed along the same time as bread. Um, people don't really know if if bread came first or beer came first or wine came first. Um, it probably all happened around the same time. And, and as as humans started to come together into uh, communities and, and into uh, large uh, um, living groups, uh, humans had more time to play around and, and to um, figure out new ways of making things, of, of making food. And a lot of, uh, of our discovery of these foods like bread and, and uh, beer and wine were more than likely serendipitous. They were more than likely a mistake. You know, what, what's the, you leave something sitting around a little bit too long and come back and, hey, you got beer. Or you leave it too long and come back, hey, you got wine. Um, so uh, it, it, it's a, a really interesting uh, uh, way to think about beer and <laughs> about how uh, 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 the, the making of beer kind of evolved. I wanted to also point out that, that uh, um, I spent some time in Australia and uh, the Australian natives, uh, the Aboriginals, so to speak, 
uh, also made beer. This is a, a really interesting thing because they've been in Australia for uh, 50 to 60,000 years. Now, it's not clear that they were making beer for 60,000 years, but they've probably been making beer for a long time. It's a very weak, weak beer that's around 2 to 3% made from eucalyptus and from other plants that the aboriginals uh, realized they could uh, get to ferment. But, uh, you know, the, the European uh, uh, age is around ten to 12,000 years ago. And the like, I, like I'm trying to point out, the, uh, the Australian Aboriginal folk may have been drinking beer way before um, Europeans uh, were drinking beer. So uh, certainly the, the uh, uh, history of drinking beer in Homo sapiens, our species, is, is quite rich and, and quite old. That, that's a, a great uh, thing to kind of point out is that um, even when you have uh, societies that aren't connected in any way, um, they're still producing alcoholic beverages, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's almost like alcoholic, uh, alcoholic beverages are really important for culture. It's not almost like it is like the, the, that the alcoholic beverages are important for cultures. They're, they're uh, cultural kind of uh, stimulators. They, they help cultures survive. Uh, and they do so because... Um, they break down inhibitions, and these in- inhibitions that get broken down allow for more social cohesion and also allows for big problems, as, as we know from um, alcohol problems, alcoholism problems in, in lots of societies. But for the most part, al- alcohol, beer especially, wine wine also, um, they play a, great, a big role in, in, in uh, how societies and cultures get formed. Uh, and a and a big part of how societies and cultures survive. Yeah, they they kind of you know uh, depending on how the culture um, can create certain laws and and how they maybe approach alcohol could be a, a big reason for how the the social aspect of alcohol is, is used. Um, I think one of the things yeah, you talked about in the book uh, is that like uh, I think in Australia you were talking about. Uh, the fact that there were in, in trying to control alcohol consumption, they did things like let's close the pub at 6 PM and, uh, and it kind of backfired, right? Yeah, the, the, exactly. It, it caused a, uh, a, a, a binge drinking trend in, in Australia. And uh, what would happen is the, they wouldn't close the pub. They would just stop serving beer and the, they would just stop serving new, new, uh, uh beers. And so what, uh, folks would do is they'd go to the belly up to the bar 15 minutes before and buy four or five pints and take them to their table and, and um, pound them down <laughs> before they got on the train or before they you know got on their bus to go home. And so this caused a, a, a problem in Australia. I mean, they tried to solve their alcohol problem differently than we did. We went through prohibition for a, about 10, maybe 12 years in the 1920s and into the 30s. And, and um, that caused a, a huge amount of social problems here in the United States with prohibition. So, you know, the 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 get, there's a give and take that's very interesting um, around all of this, and and uh, uh, one that um, really points to the fact that beer, alcohol, wine um, is a pretty important part of how we we do culture, how we we think about our cultures. Yeah. Um- 
going thinking about prohibition, I think prohibition had profound effects in general on the United States beer production, right? There was a different culture in the United States pre-prohibition and post-prohibition because of that abstinence for, you know, 10 years or at least non-commercialization for, you know, uh, 10 years. Um, how did that really affect the, you know, the the beer industry before what what did it look oh, like yeah. in america and then oh. what did it look like after prohibition yeah he, here in new york city well, of course the the beer capitals uh, of of the united states were in the midwest in milwaukee and uh, st louis and and the midwestern town chicago but here in new york city just as an example um where i where i live um there were thousands of breweries in in all of new york city you know thousand and Prohibition hit, and then when prohibition was lifted, there were something like six left. And and the way that they survived through prohibition was through making uh, malt. Um, and uh, of course, they probably cheated on the side and made a lot of alcohol, a lot of beer and stuff on the side. But they tried to uh, stay open. These breweries did by making malt and malt products, and and they did so. So after prohibition, there was, I mean, the whole brewery industry was just kind of wiped down to very few um, uh, breweries, and that's probably uh, why uh, the big big breweries, the big guys, took over um, and and were such a big a big uh, uh, influence in the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even. Um, you know, it's only very recently that the craft brew uh, movement has kind of uh, uh, risen up um, and, and challenged some of the big brewers, but uh, yeah, the the prohibition had a huge impact on on breweries, breweries here, uh, certainly uh, uh, in New York City, but all over the United States, and as well in Australia. I, as, again, I spent about a half year in Australia, and uh, it's very clear there are up to around six hundred uh, craft brewers now, and uh, uh, you know, say fifty years ago. Because of their um, six o'clock law, um, breweries uh, dropped to just a few of the big big breweries, um, but now they're up up pretty with a lot of uh, craft brewers. So, yeah, it, it has a huge amount of a huge effect on on how the trends in brewing have have uh, uh, kind of formed over the years. Yeah, and if we, if we go back to kind of the natural progression of uh, brewing and 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 how we kind of got to where we are today. Um, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, the ancient world and how beer wasn't really what it was today. When do you think that beer became, I, I guess, you know, you, you said that uh, hops came at a certain time. When were hops added to beer? And, and that's kind of when, you know, beer became what we think of as modern beer, right? Yeah, we we discuss this in the book, and I'm I'm blanking on the on the exact uh, date, but it's probably around 1000 A.D. Uh, 11 1100 A.D. Um, where hops were introduced to uh, brewing in Germany and and Great Britain. Um, there's a, a fairly well doc, fairly good documentation as to when this happened, and then of course um, you you get into the uh, German uh, purity uh, laws, the Reinhardtsgebot, um, a, little, a little bit after that, um, where you know the law says that uh, you 
beer is made up of water, hops, and barley, and anything else <laughs> that you make has to either get dispensation or you can't call it beer. Um, Britain didn't have that that kind of a law, neither did the Belgians and uh, other folk, but uh, it certainly had a, a big impact over the last, say, a thousand years on, on, on brewing. The introduction of hops and then this kind of uh, forcing the the three ingredients on on brewing in Germany so um, it it certainly though over, over the last say 40 or 50 years the use of hops has just exploded and and people are really really taking advantage of of the the beautiful diversity of that plant so um, there's a big difference there too yeah and 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 once those kind of be the the German style of beer started to come out, um, it did start with the like you know top fermenting ales and then worked its way into bottom fermenting lagers. Um, how 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 did that switch kind of happen? Yeah, you know um, the, the I think it's more of a, a traditional um, you know the weather in in Germany probably had something to do with it the um, you know the capacity to ferment at lower temperatures in Germany. Um, probably had something to do with it. Um, tradition probably had something to do with it. Uh, also, the availability of certain kinds of yeast, because it's the yeast that that really um, is making the difference there, right? It's the um, bottom uh, fermenting yeast or the lagering yeast, and the top fermenting yeast or the ale yeast and the stout and and um, um, uh, porter kinds of yeast. So, um, you know, maybe the yeast in Germany. Uh, started to um, lean more toward lagering kinds of yeasts and the yeast in England stayed more toward uh, alish kind of, of yeast that the top fermenting kinds of yeast. So um, it probably got a lot to do with, again, as I said, tradition, but also maybe the availability of certain kinds of yeasts. Um, yeah. You, I don't know if your, if your um, listeners are going to know about the uh, yeast that the uh, Scandinavian countries are, are, uh, producing now the farm hill, farmhouse uh, yeast that they're producing up there are spectacular. Um, so they're starting to produce really, really wonderful beers because of the local yeast that they can um, kind of find uh, during their brewing processes. So uh, where you are has a lot to do with the kind of uh, brewing that you're going to be doing. Yeah, we're, we're talking about uh, the Kvike yeast from uh, Norway. The Kvike yeast. Yeah. Yeah. And, and- and we talk about it on this uh, show seems to be coming up almost every other show right now, just because that you, that though that yeast is uh, to those in Norway, uh, an ancient or a yeast that's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I think in the modern brewing will, world, it's really something that's brand new. And uh, it's to be honest, specifically for home brewers, it really kind of, you know, affects a lot of the aspects that we, we push so hard on things like temp control. Well, Kvike can yeah. brew clean beer at warm temperatures. Right. Um, right. and it can, and it can also do a beer in four days and you can have a beer grain to glass fast. and yeah, super fast. And it it's can do fast. it with a really big beer. Right. So yeah. it, it's really kind of a, a yeast that's, uh, that's really very different and unique in the way that it behaves 
in comparison to your classic brewer's yeast, your classic ale yeast, your classic uh, um, your classic lager yeast, right? And so it's yeah, just it, it's really actually kind of cool to see that become a thing as a as a home brewer and to be able to kind of see something really change in the brewing world and watch it change. You know, cause, yeah, uh, it's, it's been a big, like you say, a big development. And I don't know if I'm going to be too technical here, but, uh, you know, the, the yeasts that are used in brewing, um, all of them have had their genome sequence, which means we know all of the genetic machinery that, that every yeast that's used to make beer, uh, we, know, we know the genetic machinery. And it turns out that Quebec uh, yeasts um, have um, evolved rapidly really really fast they're they're um really different from each other and they're even more different from all other yeasts whereas if you go to say wine yeasts wine yeasts almost all look look alike um there's very little variability in in wine yeasts and then you look at other beer yeasts and they're somewhere in between so uh what's happened with the norwegian yeast is that they've been allowed to just go go nuts they uh there have been very little domestication, very little interference by humans in, in how those yeasts in, in Scandinavia have changed over, say, the last two millennia or three millennia. Whereas wine yeasts, uh, what has happened is the vineyard, the vinters have, have kind of trained those yeasts to do certain things. They've kind of domesticated them um, and, and made them fairly uniform. And then Beer brewers uh, 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 are, that are in the mi- middle have let their uh, ale yeast and their lager yeast go um, not as fast as the Norwe- as the Scandinavians have, but uh, has let let them go so that uh, they're somewhere in between domesticated and absolutely wild, like the Scandinavian yeasts are. So um, that's an aspect that you sh- you should keep in mind. Um, and one that one that I think is really important for people brewing beer, um, that is that we are are on the cusp of knowing exactly what these these little guys, these little uh, single celled organisms that are so important for making beer, uh, knowing almost every aspect about them. I mean, it's it's pretty spectacular what uh, the the genomics guys have have done with with the beer yeasts and understanding them pretty pretty cool to kind of see that almost happen in real time it's it's really an amazing yeah. thing um yeah and then one one we'll go back to the book a bit and uh and and talk about um going back to the ales um you know one of the things that you talked about in the book was was the the production of porter and how porter was kind of the the first real mass produced beer when it came to uh, really large scale, right? Yes, yeah, um, and that's due to the um, Brits and their um, uh, just like or their their preference for that style of beer. Um, and, and again, uh, what happens um, in cultures is that certain kinds of beers get preferred um, over others, and, and those kinds of beers kind of take over and kind of give give a culture like Great Britain a um, <laughs> a uh, uh, kind of a character or a characteristic, and that's the 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 
uh, porter um, idea. Um, a lot of uh, beers, well, you know, you, you, if I think about my father uh, and his beer drinking, it was all uh, Budweiser or all Midwestern um, American lagers, right? And yep. uh, America got characterized like that. <laughs> and it's only the in the last couple decades that we've been able to kind of break away from that. And, and uh, even though they're, the big brewers are still very influential, um, we're not looked upon as 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 bud drinkers or paps paps drinkers anymore we're looked upon as fairly sophisticated with our our yeah. uh, preferences for beer um, though the but, german yeah, that, style but the german style lager like that where, where we ended up making the american light lager really um that that has really influenced brewing globally though when you talk about mass-produced beer like in japan and in other you know even china right absolutely yes and you know, uh, uh, to go back to this this uh, idea of locality having a lot to do with the culture and the culture, you know, kind of defining or characterizing a people. It, water has a lot to do with all of this too. Um, so you know, there's areas in, in uh, Europe where uh, water hardness and softness is ve- they're very different. So like in Czechoslovakia, around the, the town of Pils, where Pilsners were. Um, created, uh, the water is incredibly soft. It's about the softest water on the planet. And with that, and I'm sure your listeners know that what that means is that there's very little mineral content in the water. But you can go uh, 500, 600,000 kilometers to the to the west and be in Great Britain and see some of the hardest water that are, is on the planet. Um, so like, for instance, uh, in Great Britain, the tradition is to brew ales and porters, as we're as we're discussing. And the reason that they like brewing those in Great Britain is the water that they had was very very hard, and so they had to somehow deal with using that hard water to to brew their beer. And ales and porters were were very um, conducive to being brewed in very very uh, hard water. You can go to uh, Ireland to Dublin, and in Dublin. The uh, water is fairly hard, and that's where we where Guinness is a is a tradition. Then you go back to Germany again, and the water's fairly soft down in Bavaria, and so you get these softer, um, clearer, more crystal uh, clear beers like lagers and pilsners. So you know you you do have a, a kind of natural things too that kind of dictate culture. So you know Germans are known for their pilsners and their uh, Czechs are known for their pilsners, and Germans are known for their lagers, and Brits are known for their ales, and the Irish are known for their their stouts, um, and and they wouldn't be known for that those things unless uh, uh, they had to deal with the water that they were doing. And nowadays, what uh, and I learned this uh, from looking at a lot of breweries here in the United States. Nowadays, um, brewers will bring in uh, water and uh, distill it, distill out all the minerals, or bring in really very soft water. And if they want to make an ale, of course, and, and a lot of home brewers know this too, you bring the mineral content up and then you make your beer. So that whole regional thing of, of lagers in Germany and ales in Great Britain, that's probably going to go away because now we can brew um, beer anywhere we want with any kind of water we want. So we can manipulate the water to the point where we don't have to worry about what the local water is like. 
Yeah, well, and that's exactly how I brew beer. I buy distilled water or reverse osmosis water, and uh, I bring it home, and that's what I, my base is zero, right? Zero mineral yeah. content. And then depending on the style of beer, if I'm going to make an IPA, I'm going to put uh, more gypsum in it. If I'm going to brew, though, with the New England IPA that's more hazy, that's going to have a little mm-hmm. more, uh, you know, calcium carbon, uh, more uh, um, nitrates in it, right? And so, yeah, exactly. um, yeah so the idea is that um, that customization of water really, I agree, is is part of the, the style, right? But the yeah, other absolutely. part of it is... But the other part is, is that yes, um, the the craft brewers specifically in the states, and I think in other um, in other countries as well, you know, you can now manipulate your water to be whatever you want. And even in in Great Britain, even if you were to go to one of their breweries, even today, um, they still add additives to their water. Um, they actually might even bring up the mineral content even more, right? Mm-hmm. To to bring out that maltiness and to really make it pop. And so it's, I think that that's one of the things that when we talk about uh, brewing and the chemistry of brewing and the science of brewing is that uh, they have that ability to really hone in and, and almost intensify the effect of what they're trying to do um, with, with like water additives, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and um, imagine brewing 200 years ago in England or in Czechoslovakia you were kind of cornered into brewing a specific kind of a beer. You didn't have that luxury of uh, that, that modern uh, craft brewers and modern home home brewers have of, of adjusting the water and then brewing exactly what you want or, you know, brew a lager one week and a, 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 a stout the next week. So um, it, 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 it's a, uh, and the, the other interesting thing, I hope I, I, I made the point. The other interesting thing is that, the culture of beer drinking was dictated by the locality. And now I think that's going to, we're, we're going to see that disappear, which is a, is a shame is a kind of a shame, but in, in many ways, I think it's better for beer drinking to be able to have this uh, variety and this, this capacity to go in different directions. I, I agree with that. But when we talk about the culture of, uh, um, of at least uh, the culture of, drinking in a way that is more social. Um, I think that right now in the United States, we're kind of at a renaissance, right? Um, I think that uh, when we looked at the culture post-prohibition and, you know, we, we spent so many years drinking the the standard American light lager, that also was around a time when people weren't really going to bars all the time, right? And if you were, you were kind of like a loner going to a bar. And, uh, Whereas we're now in a case where um, drinking is a social occasion again and people go to bars for the reason to be social. And then there's so many different styles of brewery for so many different types of beer. If you're super into lagers, you can go to a brewery that just does lagers. If you want, if you want British ales um, on cask, you can go to a brewery if you live in a big enough city and actually have that, right? So it's kind of... Um, and, and we're getting hyper specialization, but with that is kind of, uh, an entire, uh, culture that's being built in itself around craft beer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's a different culture than say what was, what existed even 50 years ago where, um, uh, the, the preferences of people were very regionalized. 
now I think you're right. You're 100% right. Because craft brewers can do what they do and some of the big brewers can do what they they can do, the diversity in, it, it, across localities, uh, across cultures is, is increasing. And I think it's, you know, like I said, there's some advantages to seeing that having some impact on culture, but there's also the, the huge advantage of the variety and, and the, the ability to just drink what you want to drink when you, when you go to a brewery or when you go to a bar. It's a, yeah. it's a very different world than it was 50 years ago, really different than it was 50 years ago. It's really, really different and kind of crazy to see, um, you know, kind of randomly. I When I grew up, my mother owned a bar until um, I was 14 years old in the middle ah. of the 80s. And, uh, you know, the description in the book where you, you talk about how, you know, going to a bar was almost kind of stigmatized in the United States post-prohibition. People drink at home, right? Um, and, you know, I just feel like that's just changed now. You go to a brewery, they're packed, they're filled with people that are enjoying yeah. beers, and it's just back to being a social thing. And uh, and it's something that uh, I think we're now in a place to where we're getting that kind of beer culture that um, it's almost like, I, I kind of feel like Prohibition put the brakes on the American beer culture for 50 years, not 10. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're right about that. And, and the whole uh, uh, beer culture... I love that term, actually, and, and, you know, the beer culture here in the United States and the beer culture in Australia and the beer culture in England and, you know, the beer culture in Europe, uh, beer culture in Japan. I, I just love the idea of of the beer cultures. And, and um, again, it's, it's wonderful because what we have is a, a capacity to uh, uh, experience all, all this wide variation of beers, and we're not kind of uh, penned into drinking all lagers or drinking all pilsners, even though if you go to Czechoslovakia, that's probably what you want to do. But um, it, it, it's it's really a great time. It, it, it certainly is. Yeah, uh, it, it's uh, it's kind of a, a really it's been a it, it's a cool thing to see and to have been, you know, kind of part of, um, you know, what, what's what's next for you guys when it comes to uh writing are are you done doing uh beer and wine history books what what, what kind of uh <laughs> what kind of things are you guys working on well we actually have a contract to do a, a natural history of spirits to kind of round out things and again this the the natural history of spirits is really kind of kind of a cool thing um because there's so many different kinds of spirits uh, on the planet, and again, the the the, the spirits are very uh, highly localized and and highly uh, kind of culturally cemented. Um, you know, you have vodkas from Eastern Europe, and you have um, scotches from uh, you know Great Britain and Ireland, and you know you have uh, tequilas and and uh, from from uh, Mexico and chichachas from South America. It's it's a it's going to be a lot of fun and and. Uh, um, I don't know if you're uh, uh, well. You, you've you've taken a look at at the book, and we start each chapter with a, a little a description of a beer that we drink, that kind of leads us into the chapter. And I'm really looking forward to uh, hitting the spirits and leading into the chapters in the spirits book. So, so sounds like you're going to get to drink a little bit of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. I hope. Uh, just a yeah. Little bit. Well, it's it is kind of cool, and one of the one of my favorite jokes I tell is from to all my friends, and I have lots of 
a lot of people that are into beer, obviously into whiskey. Um, I live in, I live in Colorado and half of them smoke weed too. So, um, but the point (laughs) is, is that, uh, well, that's uh, the, that's the fourth book. That'll be the fourth book will be, uh, the history of marijuana. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So, but when we talk about, uh, uh, spirits particularly, like for example, you go to England, it's not called scotch. It's just called whiskey. Whereas, you know, here, if we talk about whiskey, it's, you know, uh, it's a brown liquor from the South. And so um, yeah. it's kind of funny how hyper localized uh, whiskey still is um, and spirits still are. And uh, and I think that, yes, craft distilling is becoming a thing. But I think craft distilling right now, at least in the United States, it, and this is just an observation and probably wrong. Um, but I think that craft distilling now is where brewing was in the United States 30 years ago. Right. It's, yeah. I, uh, more burnt. I, I, I exactly. I, 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 you could actually even go out on a limb and say that home brewing is the key to all of it. Um, I think home brewing stimulated the craft brewing movement. And you know, I don't. I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think you'd have craft brewing without home brewing. And I think with spirits, you have very uh, few home brewers, uh, home spirit brewers. And I think that, that what, what is needed is maybe a home, uh, home brewing spirit kind of movement too, to well, really kind of get the, the craft, craft uh, spirit brewing. There, that's really so, taken off now, um, though I'll be very clear as I'm on a podcast, you know, um, to distill spirits in the United States is against the law. So I'm going to say that yes. now. Um, but <laughs> if you were to, uh, you know, for example, there's uh, these all-in-one brewing systems that we have now, like the Grainfather and uh, the Mash and Boil, right? They're these, uh, they're easy, mm-hmm. easily accessible home brewing systems. Well, w- one of the cool things, and I'll use Grainfather as an example, is you can buy a distilling top for it, right? And so um, it's a lot more approachable than it used to be in the fact that you can just buy the distilling top. It's a lid you put on, and it's basically turn converts that homebrewing set up into a still and so it's kind of something where um we're now kind of at a place where the technology is kind of brought it to where it's it's accessible to people and uh you know you're you're starting to see a really yeah. big craft distilling movement that is driven by people who are doing it at home and it usually starts with somebody who's who's homebrewing as well yeah and i i think that that's again a very important aspect of, of how craft brewing uh, became so popular. Again, I, I don't think it would be without home brewing. I think um, home brewing has been a very, very important uh, uh, cog in the in the getting us to the point of, of beer culture, you know. That's awesome. Well, I will make sure that uh, when your uh, spirits book comes out, I will get a copy and, uh, and read it, and maybe <laughs> we'll have you back on the show. Um, and That'll be fun. Yeah, and Rob, thank you so much for coming on to Homebrewing DIY. I think that uh, this was a really informative conversation and and a great chat. And uh, like I said, anyone who's listening to the show, head over, look at the show notes, look at uh, my, uh, if you head over to our website, I'll have links to the book. Uh, it's definitely a book worth checking out. It's not even a, it's not a huge read. This is not a 600 page book. This is uh, you know a <laughs> few hundred pages. You could read it uh, in a couple of days, but it's a great read. Yeah, there was too much beer to drink uh, and so little time. (laughs) Well, Rob, thanks for coming on the show and uh, 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 really look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, thank you, Coulter. You take care now. 
I want to thank Rob for coming on the show. I don't know about you, but I learned a ton. If you want to learn more about their book, head over to homebrewingdiy.beer. I'll have a link to Amazon so you can find their book, A Natural History of Beer. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Look for our handle, at homebrewingdiy, all one word. Well, that's it for this week, and we'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY.